Good morning. My name is Ruth Solberg, and I will be reading from Philippians 2 this morning. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or work labor in vain. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Hey, Faith Church. Obviously, I'm neither Joe nor Brad. My name is Sam Chen. I actually grew up right here at Faith Church. And I've spent my career in the political arena. So when Joe and Brad decided to do a sermon series called Joyful Loser, I was a natural fit. But it is a joy to be here and to share God's word with you today. Now, I come believing that wherever we've been this week or whatever you might be carrying with you this week and coming in today, that God is gonna do great things right here. And so I invite you to lean into that. And so let's pray and then we'll jump right in. God, we've come to meet with you. We just ask that you would encounter us today. We just take a moment and just pray for yourself that God would meet you right where you are today. And then would you take a moment and pray for me, that these would be God's words, not mine, and that they would be helpful to you. God, I just ask that you would remove me today and that you would be the one who speaks. God, we just ask that you would encounter us in this moment, that when we leave here today, we would truly know you better and love you more than this moment right now. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I want you to think about your life. And, and when you think about your life, we can divide our lives into three major areas, right? There's, there's who you are, there's who you know, and then there's what you do, right? So who you are, this is your identity. This is who you are on the inside at your core. Who you know, this is your family, your friends, your colleagues, your contacts, this is your network. And then what you do, right? This is your job, your hobbies, your extracurricular activities. In your entire life, there's been a hyper-focus on who do you know and what do you do, right? So I want you to think back to when you were growing up. And, and I realize for some of us, we got to reach back a little further. But it's been what? Who do I play with? Who do I take to prom? Who do I date? Who do I marry? Then you graduate to who do my kids play with and date and marry? Who writes my college recommendations? Who are my references on my resume? And when we're not focused on who do we know, it's what do I do? What's my GPA? Am I a jock, a band geek, a nerd? What activities do I need? Do I take the SATs? What college do I go to? What job do I get? How do I get the next promotion? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And society has taught us that this is a formula for success. 
Right, so we got these cute little catchphrases like, it's not about what you do, it's about who you know. It's not about who you know, it's about who knows you. Your network is your net worth. And, and this is preached so much that we've been told that if we just do the right things and we know the right people, then that makes us who we are, that defines us. And this is so ingrained in us, I just want you to think about how you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sam Chen, I'm a college professor and a political strategist, and I've worked for fill in the blank. But I would suggest to you today that we have this all backwards, that the things you do and the people you know will never make you who you are, but rather your doing will flow from your being. And for some of you, this is not just life, this is your faith journey. Because throughout your faith, you've been thinking, if I could just do the right thing, and maybe if there's something else I can do, or, or if I just hang with the right people, then maybe, maybe I can earn my place in the kingdom of God. And I would again suggest today that we have this all backwards, that being a Christ follower, being a Christian has nothing to do with, with what we do or with who we know, but it's an identity. And so the question today is what does it mean to be a Jesus follower? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead, open them up, turn them on. We're in Philippians chapter two, verses 12 to 18. And Paul is writing, and he says, therefore, my friends, I just want to hit pause here for a moment, because anytime you see a word like therefore, these are connection words, and they're connecting what the author is going to say with what the author has just said. So let's think back to last week, and Pastor Brad emphasized the humility of Christ. So I want you to listen closely as we read the, Paul's words here describing Christ's humility, because this is what's going to set up our passage for today. So this is Philippians 2, now starting in verse 6. And Paul's writing about Christ. And he writes, Who in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's that understanding then that Paul comes to this passage and he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if I can just be honest for a moment, this verse has always kind of scared me, right? I think partially I didn't love the implications and partially I just didn't really understand what it meant. But here's the thing I've learned about scripture, that just because we don't understand something doesn't mean that God didn't say it. Right? That's not how this works. So, so let's break this down and let's dig in. What does it mean when Paul says we are to work out our salvation? See, if we believe that scripture is the infallible word of God, then we believe that every word, including the A's, the ands, and the thes, are there for a reason. So then not only do we read scripture for what it says, but we have to take note of what it does not say. And notice what Paul does not say in this passage. He does not say, work for your salvation. He does not say, work toward your salvation. No, Paul specifically says, work out your salvation. This passage is not saying that you have to or even that you can earn your salvation. 
In fact, what's the next thing Paul says here in verse 13? For it is God who works in you. It is God who works to save us. The fancy word for this is justification. So what does justification mean? What does it mean to be justified? I want you to imagine that you're in court, right? You're on trial and the jury finds you not guilty or maybe they convict you. And then somebody steps forward and they pay your penalty. You are now free to go. There's nothing more you can do. You can't call in more character witnesses and be declared more not guilty, right? You can't pay more of a fine and, and be more free. No, you're free. The act is done, freed, justified. It's, this is the new identity of the Christ follower, justified. Our debt of death is paid, our sin is forgiven, and our standing with God has been restored. To be justified is to have our standing restored. This is justification. This is all the work of God. Right? God does all of this. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul describes it this way. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. In Philippians, Paul describes it this way. He says, for it is God who works in you. And some of you, you just need to hear this today. Because your entire life, you, you've been, been just saying, if I could just do the right thing. Maybe if I was more consistent about going to church. Or maybe if I just cussed less. Or maybe if I hung with the right people, like if I could just hang out with Pablo and Jenny more, then maybe, right, just may, you're all thinking it, right? Just maybe, maybe I could incur the favor of God. Maybe I could find my place with God. But justification, no, Paul writes, for it is God who does the work. And I just want you to hear this today and to sit in this reality and just let it wash over you and overwhelm you. God does the work and you are his. Not guilty, justified, period, full stop. I think for a lot of us, we understand this, but then we live as if justification is not just the beginning of our story, but it's the end. But you notice here that, that Paul says, for it is God who works and that word works is in present tense. That means God isn't just finished working. Justification is not the end of our journey with God. It is the beginning. And it opens into a process that we call, it's in our big Bible words, sanctification. So what is sanctification? Well, simply put, sanctification is a process by which we become holy. And throughout scripture, you see that God has said, you must be holy just as I am holy. Sanctification is that process, and God invites us into it. It is our journey toward becoming like Jesus. So what's the difference between sanctification and justification? Well, justification is a one-time act. Justification is something that God does that pays down our debt, that forgives our sins and declares us free. Sanctification is a process, and it's a process that you and I are invited into. Again, sanctification is our journey toward becoming like Jesus. Go back to that courtroom scene from earlier. So you declare not guilty. We have this joke in law that just because you're declared not guilty does not suddenly make you a great upstanding human being, 
right? The law is a very low standard. Just because you then murder someone doesn't mean you're a candidate for person of the year. It's not how it works. All right, so, so you're declared not guilty, but is not guilty the goal? No. Being justified is not the goal. You and I are not just called to be not guilty. We're called to be like Jesus. And that is sanctification. Sanctification, or our salvation begins with justification, but does not end there. Sanctification is our journey toward becoming like Jesus. Right? And it's this journey that God engages us, and that's why here Paul says, calls on us to work out our salvation. And the tense and structure of the word that Paul uses here implies something that is first received and then acted on. Right? So a good synonym is the word cultivate. Think about how a gardener cultivates a garden. I mean, so you, you get something, you receive it, and then you act on it. So think about Working out, right? You go to the gym and you work out. Here's the thing about working out. Working out does not give you muscles. You already have muscles. Now, whether that's evident or not is another story. But going to the gym doesn't give you muscles. You already have them. It cultivates what you already have. We're right now in the middle of the Olympics, and it's the first Olympic Games in 25 years where the legendary Michael Phelps is not in the pool. And every time they talk about Michael Phelps, they inevitably talk about how he has the perfect swimmer's body. Uh, he was built perfectly as a swimmer. He looks a little geeky. He looks a little bit disproportionate, but he's perfect for the water. But here's the thing. Michael Phelps did not win 28 Olympic medals, including 23 gold, because he had a swimmer's body. It's what he chose to do with it. It's how he cultivated it. So this is Michael Phelps' training regimen as he prepared for the Olympics. He would swim 80,000 meters a week. That's 50 miles a week. That is 450 laps a day in your local community pool. He would sleep in a chamber 9,000 feet above ground to train his lungs to breathe thinner air. And when the recommended daily intake is 2,000 calories a day, Michael Phelps needed to consume 8 to 10,000 calories a day or he would lose muscle mass. For 20 years, Michael Phelps was in the pool before the sun came up, 365 days a year, including weekends, birthdays, and holidays. Michael Phelps did not become the most decorated Olympic athlete in history because he was gifted a swimmer's body. No, it's what he chose to do with it. And, and you notice here what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. He says, continue to work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. See, God works in you, and then he works through you. God works in you, and then he works through you. God does the work, yes, but you and I are called into partnership with that, to cultivate that work. So what does that cultivation look like? Well, verse 13, Paul tells us. He says, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good pleasure. The call of salvation is on every aspect of our lives. And it's unto God, it's not unto us. This is our purpose, this is our identity. And when we live this out, we maximize God's glory and our joy. So let's review. Your identity is justified, not guilty. God does that. And then you and I are called into a process. That justification leads us into a process of sanctification, a journey of becoming like Jesus. And we're in that journey, we're called to partner with God. To put it in other words, you are not called to change for Jesus, but Jesus changes you. 
We don't change for Jesus, but Jesus changes us. So then what is our role in all of this? What do we do? Where do we go from here? And Paul tells us, in verse 16, Paul says, as you hold firmly to the word of life. Remember, we don't earn our salvation, right? That's given to us, but we are called to receive it, to grasp it, to embrace it, to act on it, and then to live it out. So how do we work out our salvation? by encountering and embracing and holding on to Jesus. And I don't just mean here on Sundays, right? That part's easy. I mean tomorrow at work. I mean with your family. When you go to Wegmans or Costco. Our call of salvation, our identity as justified and sanctified is a call on our entire lives. And I know some of you are thinking, wait, wait, hold on, Sam. Our entire life? Yes. My identity as justified and my identity as sanctified will impact every aspect of my life. And some of you are thinking, wait, hold on, I'm not sure I signed up for that. That, that, That's kind of frightening if it affects every part and every part of my life and everything that I do. That's, That's a little scary, and it is. And that's why Paul says here that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because fear and trembling is the natural response to our encounter with Jesus. Throughout scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, how many times do we see God, when he encounters people, he has to tell them not to fear? Because fear and trembling is our natural response to encountering God, right? This is true from Adam in Genesis all the way to John in Revelation. Because when we encounter Jesus, our natural response is fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is the natural response when we awaken to the reality of the holiness and the glory of God and we begin to see our own fallenness in that light. It's the natural response when we awaken to how great God is, how how great and grand he is, and we begin to see how small we truly are in that light. And that, that, that growing chasm between God's greatness and his glory and his holiness and our own fallenness and insignificance, that growing chasm is how great, it's how high and how wide and how deep and how long God's love for you is. Hallelujah. And that should make us tremble. There's a story in Luke 5. All right, Peter's with some of his apostles and, and they're professional fishermen, right? And they don't catch anything. So Jesus, who by the way is not a professional fisherman, he's a carpenter, Jesus comes along and he says, hey, you should go out to the one part of the sea at the one time of day where it's impossible to catch anything and go for a catch. They obey and they catch so many fish that their boats begin to sink. And in this moment, Peter awakens to who Jesus is. He sees Jesus for who he truly is as Lord. And he begins to see his own fallenness. And and Peter pushes Jesus away, right? He says, Lord, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. But I want you to notice what Jesus says to him in response. In Luke 5, 10, Jesus says to Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And what Jesus is not doing here, he's not talking about something else Peter's gonna do. No, he's talking about Peter's identity. So in that moment, as, as Peter pushes Jesus away, and some of you know exactly how Peter feels, because you're there right now. And as Peter pushes Jesus away, Jesus draws near to Peter. Jesus pulls Peter in and he he invites him, he calls him into this journey 
and into the kingdom of God. And that call, that promise for Peter is the same invitation for you and for me today. The journey of sanctification begins with us encountering Jesus day after day after day. Not, not because it's something else to do, right? That, that, to get God to love us more, right? That's not it. Because remember, what you do doesn't, doesn't affect who you are. What you do does not make you who you are, but rather your doing flows out of your being. And you know, this is not even the religious concept. We understand this in every other part of our lives, right? If we dwell on something, we're gonna move in that direction. When I was growing up and I learned how to play tennis, my greatest fear was hitting the ball out of bounds. So I focused on that out of bounds line. And guess where I sent the ball every single time? Out of bounds. When you're driving, if you're afraid to drive on the shoulder, so you focus on the shoulder, guess where your car's going? To the shoulder. And this is more true with people. If you love someone, if you care about someone, guess what? You dwell on them. And the more you dwell on them, the more you become like them. Right? Let's say the person you care about, the person you love is a Yankees fan, and you're not a Yankees fan, right? First of all, pray for them, okay? They need Jesus. Amen. But very quickly, you know, you, they love the Yankees, you don't. But very quickly, what? You're going to know when the Yankees play. You're going to know what the score is. You're going to know when they win, when they lose. You're going to start setting notifications on your phone that tell you all the news about the Yankees. Why? Not because you love the Yankees, but because the person you love does. When we love someone, when we care about someone, we want to draw near to them, and we're going to encounter and embrace them more. And the more we encounter and embrace them, the more we become like them. See, our priorities, they're not what we say they are. They're what we make time for. So when I recognize who Jesus is, when I awaken to that reality, and when I, when I recognize all that he's done for me, I want to follow him. I want to partner with Jesus. And so what does that look like? I mean, the question we ask is, do I look like Jesus? I'm a college professor and a political strategist. When I'm with my students, do I look like Jesus? When I'm strategizing a campaign, do I look like Jesus? Because if I don't, I'm still justified, right? I mean, I'm still justified. But is the goal to be not guilty? No. The goal is to look like Jesus. So my goal is not to be a college professor who believes in Jesus or to be a political strategist who believes in Jesus. No, my goal is to be a follower of Jesus who happens to be a college professor, a follower of Jesus who happens to work in politics. A follower of Jesus who happens to be a doctor or an engineer or a financial advisor or a parent or a friend or a teacher. The truth is this, you know, despite what society tells us, despite everything they preach to us, what you do and who you know will never make you who you are. But your identity, who you are, will determine the significance of every relationship that you have and the success of everything that you do. In Isaiah 66, 2, God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, but I will look to or I will esteem this one. And, and hold on, just, just time out here. God looks to someone? I mean, I spend so much time on social media trying to get the affection and attention of other people, right? Tapping and liking and swiping. And, and God looks to someone? I don't know about you, but, but if God tells me he looks to someone, I want to be that person. And God says, this is the one I look to. He says, these are the ones I look on with favor. One who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. 
God says, this is the one I look to, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, whose spirit is not about oneself, but about God, and who trembles at my word. And and if I'm honest, I don't know the last time I picked up this book and I opened it and I read it and and I I realized that this is God speaking and, and trembled at this word. To go anywhere in here, you know, Matthew, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do I, do I love my enemies? I, I'm not sure I love people who vote differently than I do. Pray for your enemies? No, no, no. I mean, I pray about my enemies. But, but it's a lot easier, right? It's a lot easier to just mock them and to make funny memes about them. But, but this, this is the word of God. This is God speaking. Do I do this? Do I realize that this is an encounter with God? You see, we encounter Jesus by revering his word. This book is not just a checklist of beliefs. It's not just a massive to-do list. No, this book is an encounter with Jesus. And if we're followers of Jesus, then we don't just take this literally. We must also take it seriously. And that should make us tremble. Not in a bad way, but because if we're trembling, that is us awakening to who God is. That is us awakening to our identity in light of who God is. That is us and God beginning to unite in heart and mind. It's a sign that the work is flourishing and that we are awakening to our identity in Christ. A few years ago, I had a friend who was thinking about running for office. And I was organizing the event and had all the big wigs, donors and members of Congress and senators and party chairs. And, and so I, I invited my friend to this event and I said, yeah, you can have a part in it. And he said, yeah, sorry, I can't be there. I, I gotta be in Philadelphia that day. And by the way, he lives nowhere near Philadelphia. And I was like, okay, well, he's kind of crazy. Uh, and then he explained to me that, well, he has, because I have a friend who, who is uh, in cancer treatment and needs someone to drive him to Philadelphia that day. And so I volunteered and we'll be there all day. Okay. So fast forward several months and my friend is running for office and I'm at this event and, and as he speaks, he points to a young man in the back and he says, and today's a great day because that young man today has been declared cancer free. And so I realized that's the young guy this guy was driving to Philly. So I go and I have a conversation with him and here's what I find out. Number one, he didn't just take him to Philly one day. No, twice a week, he was getting up before the crack of dawn, driving him to Philadelphia, staying with him all day for cancer treatment and then driving him home. And number two, they became friends. They didn't start off as friends. This candidate was his boss. This guy was getting up twice a week before dawn to drive an employee to cancer treatment and miss the campaign event of a lifetime to do that. And I wish I could stand here and tell you that he won and it was great and we changed the community for good, but there's no bow on this story. He lost. And never once did he share that story that I just shared with you. Because for him, it was never about what he was doing or about who he knew, but it flowed from his identity. It flowed from his faith, from who he was. So what does that look like for you in your life? What does that look like at work, at home? What does that look like in your relationships, in the moments where the whole world is watching you and the moments where nobody sees you? See, for some of us, we just have to begin by sitting in the reality and the fact that God loves you so much that he justifies you. 
and by just sitting in that embrace of God. And for some of us, we're not just, just sitting, we're not just resting, we're, we're now lazy and lounging in our Christianity and we need to allow that immense love of God to move us into partnership with God into this process of sanctification. So when you get up tomorrow, open your Bible and I promise you, you will encounter Jesus. Obey your Bible and you will enter into partnership with God and your life will be transformed. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you that you choose to encounter us. And so God, we just ask that, that we would embrace that identity as justified and as sanctified. That we would get up day after day and that we would seek you and that we would walk with you and journey with you and that you would meet us and encounter us in ways that, that would change our lives. That day by day, you would teach us to love you more and know you more. God, would you encounter each and every one of us right where we are as we go about our lives, we would look like you. Amen.